Hello friends and welcome back to the intro. This is your host, Matt Delavalli, aka MDV, and I'm joined today on the show by none other than my good friend and co-worker, Gabe Yanez. Gabe is Director of Sales and Marketing at NC Fit, but he's also a complete health nut, a diehard Mets fan, and a newly minted regenerative farmer in Texas along with his wife, Ariel. In this episode, Gabe and I talk shop about nutrition. Everything from Gabe's decision to grow and raise his own food to best practices for anyone looking to improve the quality or quantity of their intake. Now, there's a lot of myths out there about nutrition, and it can certainly be a taboo subject, but we try to make some sense of it today for everybody listening. So grab a notebook, grab a chair, and let's learn a thing or two from Gabe Yanez. Let's go. All right, welcome back to the intro. On the show today is my good friend, my co-worker, somebody who I love working with, love watching Mets games with if they're winning, Gabe Giannis. Gabe and I uh, go way back now, three, four years working with NC Fit. We're both boys from Long Island, New York, who made our way out to California to join the mission, along with Jason and the team at NC Fit. And Gabe, since the last time we talked, all the way back in episode two, Life's changed quite a bit for you, man. Tell us what's going on. You're in Texas now. Texas, Texas. That's right. I mean, yeah, a lot, a lot has changed and a lot of things that, you know, maybe weren't like super planned, but, um, you know, ever since we, you know, took the jump to live full time in an airstream, I think that like, you know, all plans have gone out the window. So Mm. no surprises there, but yeah, we, uh, find a, found a place and have now bought, you can call it a farm in Mm. Texas and have started kind of raising some animals and doing some, you know, kind of cool experimenting and, and, you know, crazy stuff out here, but it's been really fun. Well, we're not just going to call it a farm. It is a farm. You bought a farm, you bought a big plot of land and it's Seguin, Texas, right? Seguin, 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 Texas, excuse me. And this was all part of your guys's big adventure. You and Ariel, your wife, you guys traveled across country, kind of Almost at the start of COVID, you guys hit the road and, and went out and made your way around the United States and got to the East Coast and saw some family. What drove you guys to settle down in Texas and, and buy a farm? And you've got animals and the whole deal now. Yeah, I mean, you know, the entire time that we were traveling, you know, we were very much doing so um, to take advantage of the flexibility that we now had to not have to be in one place, but also you know, take advantage of the fact that now that we weren't tied to have to be in, say, California for work, and the fact that we could both keep doing what we love doing, and check out any place in the States, we very much started taking this approach of like, well, where do we want to settle down? And having a super open mind to everywhere we visited was a possibility. Mm. Everywhere we went, you know, we were on Zillow, we were checking neighborhoods. And it was never, and this was really nice. It was never like a you know, we want to buy a house or buy property by this date. It was always just, we know we want to do that. And if we're on the road for even two, three years and, you know, don't find that that's okay. Mm. Um, and so that approach I think was, was super cool because, you know, a, a lot of people, you know, I feel like, feel like there's a, a time and a location that they know they want to make this really big decision and not being tied to those things, I think, made the process and the experience so much cooler. Mm. Um, 
yeah. And on that note, you know, we, we, we went up to Washington state. We loved it. Went to Colorado. We loved it. Um, Tennessee was super cool, but we got to Texas and, you know, everywhere we went and the more places that we stayed and the more things we checked out. And also the more we went down this, like, you know, really, really fascinating rabbit hole of, you know, nutrition and growing and raising your own food and regenerative agriculture and wanting to do something really meaningful, not only for like the health of myself and the family that we eventually want to have, but, you know, continuing on this journey of that got us to, you know, be fitness professionals, which was to help other people be healthier, um, naturally evolved to this like fascination with, with food. And so the more that we kind of figured out what we wanted our eventual settling down to look with, look Mm -hmm. like, um, the more that when we got to Texas, it just kind of checked off all the boxes for what was available, what we were able to do, what we were going to be able to afford. Um, and also just the community of, of people that are doing similar things out here, um, was another big factor that just kind of like made us feel like it was the the right time and the right place. Mm. Um, and then, you know, um, I, I think coincidences do happen. If you ask my wife, Ariel, she'll tell you, you know, that the universe has this whole plan and she gets a little hokey pokey with stuff, but, um, she loves energy Energy, it's all energy, man. Oh man. We, let's just say we balance each other well, <laughs> but you know, this, this one property that we ended up looking at just, it, it was like too good to pass up. You know, it, it just had everything that would make it not ideal for other people yeah. that made it super ideal for us. Um, because animals were raised here before. So there was a lot of like fencing in place. And there was a lot of like, you know, there was a really great barn, all things that we always expected we would have to kind of like build and create for this vision that we had for where we wanted to settle down was kind of already started here. Um, so yeah, it just, it, it, it all fell into place. It all moved super, super fast. And, you know, next thing you know, we were Texans. Yeah. Well, so this is really interesting to me because, um, you guys have lived a pretty adventurous, for, for most people, you've lived a pretty adventurous lifestyle through the past year. You know, when everything hit, you guys were living down in Southern California. We all had kind of different plans based on what was going on in the world. You know, if COVID's not a thing just yet, NCFIT was doing a lot of different stuff in Southern California, a lot of big projects that we were going to all get into. And then life kind of changed for everybody. And you guys took that opportunity to really go out there and explore and, you know, live out of the airstream. I was still got to ask you. So there's a lot of people out there that want to support local and, you know, support people who are growing their own food and raising their own animals for sustenance and, you know, support regenerative farming. And you know, I'm one of those people when I, when I can, I do. And if I can shop local, I'll try, but I'm not necessarily going to buy myself a, plot of land, you know, a farm and, you know, settle down very quickly. And, you know, this become my life. That's a big jump for most people from, you know, a year and a half ago, two years ago, you're the guy rolling up to the gym in an Audi truck, right? Like, you know, that's a far cry from where you are now waking up at four in the morning to tend to the animals before you get your workday started. So what was the impetus to make such an extreme jump to, Hey, we're, we're now farmers for all intents and purposes. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that I, and I forgot where I heard it, but you know, I, I loved it. And, you know, I really try and kind of like live by this is, is, you know, we kind of, if we want to lead 
people to make better decisions about their health and their nutrition, which I'm super passionate about, you kind of have to live in the extremes because that's how you pull everyone from this like center average that, you know, if you look at what average is in the US, it's not doing us any favors. And I think that by being in the absolute extreme and like showing that that is doable. And while no, not everyone needs to be there, that I completely agree. Mm -hmm. This is not for everyone. Um, it pulls that center in my mind a little bit in the right direction, right? Because now we can educate people on like, Hey, if the only thing that you start doing is going to your farmer's market and getting like locally raised eggs instead of the store-bought stuff. And that's like the only thing you change. Everything else stays the same because that's the thing that's like, you know, practical enough. That's the thing that's affordable enough. That's the thing that like fits into what people can manage. That's huge, you know? And I think that sometimes we, we underestimate the impact that really small changes can have. But I think that like getting people to make those small changes takes like going in the extreme, extreme direction, but also being open with the fact that like, no one is expecting, you know, like I'm not expecting people to like see what we're doing and like drop everything, go find some land and start growing their own mm. food. But what I do hope is that it shows people how powerful that is and how powerful like taking even small steps in that direction can be. I really didn't expect the conversation this morning to go this direction, but I, I'm, I'm super interested and equally as passionate about obviously health, wellness, and fitness as you are. And, you know, a statistic that I have been hearing over the past couple of months is this statistic that 75% of Americans are obese or overweight, 75%. That's fucking three quarters of the entire United States population. And I don't know whether that statistic is accurate, low ball, high ball, if they're quoting it out there, which a lot of people seem to be doing from a lot of different sources, it doesn't seem to be a left or a right issue. There's probably some level of accuracy to that number. What do you think, what do you think has, and then this is a complex question and a complex issue, but what do you think the reason that we have that statistically high number in the United States, what, what is going on with our nutrition and our fitness that we now have three quarters of our population obese or overweight? Man, that's a complicated one and a tough one, but you know, it's, it's one of those things where, and you know, this, when it comes to fitness, there's, there's so much, I think if you want to boil it down, it boils down to the amount of misinformation and like immediate gratification that is that is put out there to solve both of those issues and so much of that stuff has actually hurt us more than they've helped us so you know in fitness the fact that you know we were sold that you know you have to well we don't have to get into fitness stuff but like in nutrition specifically you know crash diets and limiting caloric intake and the fact that like, you know, even dating back to high fructose corn syrup being better than sugar, you know, there's been all these things that have been become mainstream in people's heads that are actually detrimental and taking us in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. And it's a shame because a lot of people have the right intention. Like, I don't think people want to be unhealthy. I don't think people want to be obese or, or, or all these things, but they're constantly looking for solutions and running into things that not only aren't helping, 
but are making things worse. Mm. Um, and I think that, you know, I mean, you can have a whole conversation about how a lot of that just stems from having these massive food companies that have so much money and so much influence that they can kind of deem what is true and what is not um, by, you know, sponsoring certain studies and by just flooding the shelves with their products that aren't good for you with, you know, like dubious claims about like vitamin fortified and vegan and organic and all these things that like turn into buzzwords and immediately people like associate with being healthier when they're truly not. Yeah. Well, I asked you a question that has a nearly impossible answer, especially in a short format podcast, because th there are so many different layers to this issue. And I want to strip out any of the socioeconomic aspects of this conversation because they exist. Those things obviously exist, that there are socioeconomic factors that play into people's awareness and access and ability to eat a certain way or do certain things. And I understand that those are major issues and I'm not downplaying the fact that they are issues. I just want to essentially take those and put those to a side for a second, because I think no matter who you are and who you interact with, or if you're a coach or if you're an athlete, or if you're just somebody who's out there in the ether here in the United States, you know, people in your life, this is a fact, you know, people in your life that are obese or overweight that don't necessarily fall into that category of socioeconomic restrictions that haven't allowed that individual to gain access or understand the proper nutrition or food choices. Let's just put that to the side for a second. I think the, one of the most important things that you said as you were going through this is that this is a, there's a lot of misinformation out there about nutrition, which also then gets coupled with the fact that we are fed all in this min misinformation and the choices to eat more quote unquote poorly are made much easier due to that misinformation, whether it's due to buzzwords or cost or uh, access to foods, or just like the, when you go into a traditional supermarket, what do you have access to buy? Those for me are big, but in particular misinformation, why is there so much misinformation about nutrition in your opinion? I mean, it, it, it does come down to the fact that, you know, little step back, you know, after the industrial revolution and after world war II specifically, you know, we had all of these facilities that were like ready to go to build certain things that we needed to during the war that now had to make for something. So you combine that with the fact that, you know, especially after World War II, like we, we very much had the interest of, you know, how can we feed the entire country and keep everything in house, right? Like how do we create enough food to feed everyone here so we're not dependent on anyone in the outside? So both of those completely valid. And the solution there turned into turning all these like, you know, wartime factories that were ready to go to really make all these fertilizers and inputs for how we grow food. You know, like good news then, right? Because now we can take this incredibly like fertile United States and really grow all the wheat, corn and soy that you need to feed an entire country. And we don't have to be dependent on anyone out there. So it was a good solution at the time. And you can even make the argument that it was very well intentioned given where we were in the world at that time. 
the problem ended up being- And had major impacts on the economic structure of the United States. Right. All, yeah. So on and so forth, for sure. Yes. Yeah. So like great solution. But then what happened was, you know, what happens when you get to the point where you're like producing so many calories that you don't have a consumer that needs all that. Now you have supply that's up here, demand that's kind of here. And so a lot of these companies had this huge incentive to, okay, how can we get people to need more calories, to want more calories, to crave more calories so that they could sell all this food that they were growing. Um, and the problem was that as that kind of evolved, you know, you had food that was a lot more calorie dense, but not necessarily more nutrient dense. Mm. And you can make the argument and look at many examples where that trend has just continued. And it's really just the incentive of how can we take all these calories that our current food industry is very efficient at making and get it out to people to pay money for so that, you know, there, there could be some profit there. Um, you know, there's always this stat that gets thrown around that, you know, we couldn't go to more like local food practices and feed the world or feed the country, right? Like we're, we're it's like we're running out of food, but, you know, just think about the fact that we're wasting over half of our food current. You know, if you just eliminate food waste, that could make things so much more efficient. And then the second thing is, you know, while we are creating a lot of food, we're creating a lot of food, like in terms of, of calories, but not necessarily in terms of nutrients. And I think that those are two very different things. Mm. You know, if you, I think when we go back in time, there's a, there's a lot of bits and pieces of this story that I have pulled together over my years in the fitness and health industry and listening to certain people and, and watching films and reading up on things and doing my own research and my own understanding of, of things. And, and I think part of the problem in understanding all of this is that this goes back, like you were saying, years and years and years, and it's decades of information and stories that have been passed down from your parents, from your grandparents to their great grandparents, potentially, right? Like you are, are looking at things, not you in particular, but you, the greater American public are looking at things that have become just tried and true based on how long they have been in the sphere of information, right? So we start thinking about things like, hey, all right, the industrial revolution's going on post-World War II. We have the industrialization of the food industry. We have this humongous production of all these grains, wheats, industrial farming essentially gets boomed. And all of the sudden that becomes big commerce, becomes big industry. And all of the things that go along with big commerce and big industry now come along with that. And then you have lobbying for you know federal protections and more grant money and all these things. And then you have the implication of now the lobbies going out there and creating their own story and their own spin, you know, coming down to things like the study that Ansel Keys did and going out there and finding out that saturated fat was this huge culprit in heart disease and, and, and cardiovascular disease. Turns out he only reported back on seven of the, I think, 21 countries that he did his study on and gave only the information that fit his hypothesis. You add that into now you have the food pyramid that's created based on his study. And then the, you know, the, it kind of spins out of control from there, which is absolutely wild because, you know, you and I grew up in a very similar era when I look back at, 
you know, when I was a young child, you know, you think about the food pyramid and you think about this is wholesome goodness. This is the best way that I could ever eat. And I even think about it now. And like, there's an emotion that's attached to that food pyramid as being like, this is the way, this is the light. This is the guidance that we all needed. Unfortunately, jamming massive amounts of highly processed carbohydrates and grains and sugar and sugar substitutes into your body turns out not to be the best route for optimal health and nutrition. Right. And I, I, I love where this conversation is going, but you know, and one of the issues and that, you know, the study that you mentioned is a perfect example of that is the amount of parroting that there is in like science behind anything now is such an issue. You know, like if you dig back the layers of a lot of things, whether it's nutrition, fitness, or even, you know, the pandemic that we're in now, if you dig back the layers on things that like are accepted as like truths, you know, it becomes this like one and like kind of like, okay, study, usually flawed, that just gets repeated so many times that it seems like there's this like wealth of, you know, studies and scientific knowledge that is behind it. But it's really just this one study all the way back that someone decided to repeat that gets repeated enough times that it feels like there's this like huge body of evidence behind it. And, you know, that's, that's super tough. And it's no one's fault that they think that some of this stuff is true. Because, you know, you like type it into Google and you see like 20 different publications saying exactly the same thing. Mm. And no one has the time to go through each and every one. And if they even were to cite it, realize that they're citing exactly the same source. And mm. then you go to the source and you realize that the source is like not even that great. Um, it's a huge issue and, and it's, it's not easy to dig through that stuff. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of issues with a lot of issues with research in general, you have a lot of things out there that, and I am not an expert at this. I have just looked at a lot of this stuff over the years and I have talked to a lot of people about it. So these are, these are just my opinions, man. This is just my opinions. (laughs) Um, But this is not a tinfoil hat conversation either. Like I want to make it clear that I'm not trying to spin out any weird conspiracy theories, but you know, you do have to be skeptical when you look at things that are out there as quote unquote uh, science or studies that have been published. And you have to understand who, who was either paid or given grant money to promote this study. What was the reason that they did it? Are there any biases inherent in the study? You know, a lot of the studies out there with, um, you know, nutritional based background or fitness based background or things that they're trying to push forward as being like the new thing. A lot of those things involve what's called a healthy user bias, where you're looking at this one thing that they're trying to study, but there's all these other factors that play into it, which would make this information potentially skewed. And then, like you said, you have these things that have just been, you know, passed down and said enough in the public sphere that, you know, it's hard to ever challenge them. And I guess the point that I want to get to here is that this makes it incredibly hard to have a conversation about nutrition with whether or not it's with athletes or family members, if you're a person who's in the health and wellness industry and you're deciding that, all right, listen, some measure of quantity and regulation of caloric intake is important. That's obviously one truth that's out there. Your caloric intake matters. I think that ultimately we can all agree on that. 
but also now you have a measure of quality of your nutrition that your quality of foods matters a whole lot as well. You know, what, what's the distribution and, and quality of your macronutrients? And then what are your micronutrients that are going along with that? And if you're having that conversation with people and it comes down to the fact that, okay, well, you should be eating fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds. And if essentially, if you're going down that path, you know, lean proteins and all those kinds of things, and you're saying highly processed foods, refined sugars, all those things that other people might accept as part of their healthy, quote unquote, diet. There's a lot of contention there because the people who might be eating those things don't necessarily look at those things as being detrimental to their health and wellness. It makes the conversation about nutrition difficult from the jump. It's, there's nobody out there who's saying 100% this is the way. And maybe that's not the solution. Maybe the solution is educated conversation. But I empathize with a lot of coaches and, and people out there who try to have this conversation and try to have it without stirring up the emotion that it can an immediately stir up. Yeah. And, you know, bringing it back to coaches that I know is, is you know, a, a considerable part of, of hopefully the audience here, you know, it is tough because we've all had members that come up and like ask us, you know, well, what do you think about this? Like, what do you think about carnivore? What do you think about keto? What do you think about, you know, and then you also have those members that, you know, you tell them like, Hey, here's how you should be eating. Here are some things that are help. And then they'll give you back the, well, I heard that you should be doing X, Y, and Z. And it, it, it's a tough conversation because mm. some people, you know, nutrition has become this thing that is, you know, just as polarizing as so many of the other, like, you know, typically polarizing uh, topics that we have today, you know, like vegan versus carnivore, like these things become really emotional for people. Um, and I think that, you know, the one thing that I think is just like a, because you said before, you know, you're not a scientist, you're not an expert, neither am I. But I think the one thing that we can all become is an expert on what feels good to us. Like self-experimentation with stuff is, I think, something that is completely underutilized. Like if you're not feeling great, right? Like we can start there. Like if you know that you have certain things that like you just don't feel great about and you are super close-minded to changing anything about your nutrition, I think that that's a misstep. And what you can do is try keto, try cutting out, you know, gluten, try cutting out dairy, try these things that like, there may be truth behind, there may not, but the only way for you to find out what's going to make you feel better is to truly try these things for four to six weeks and like really kind of log down how that makes you feel in terms of energy level, sleep quality, mm. all the things that you want to improve and not necessarily focusing on like just what's going to help me lose weight. I think that that's another kind of, you know, thing that has made this a little trickier for a lot of people is that, you know, equating, and I know that obesity is this big issue, but equating being healthier constantly with losing weight, which I feel like gets conflated a little bit too much, we should move away from. I think that things like, you know, do people, yeah. some people need to lose weight 100%, but, and you know this, like, I rather have someone feeling like they're a lot more energized, sleeping a lot better, you know, feeling all those good things than being so focused about like what the scale is saying, because that's inevitably going to happen mm. if it's an issue. 
if you focus on like the biofeedback factors that should really matter, um, everything else will kind of work itself out. Yeah. So I, I have some thoughts on that, but I want to rewind just really quickly because you said a couple of things in there that are, are important. You know, I, I do think that nutrition is a really tough conversation for a lot of coaches or, or friends or family or loved ones. And it is so because there's a lot of, there's a lot of emotion that gets wrapped up in food and it's, it's not only just sustenance for us. There is a level of, like I said, feeling that goes, that's involved in, in eating. And, you know, it's, it's a celebratory practice in some senses. It's a practice that a lot of people lean into when they have, you know, feelings of anxiety or depression or things like that as well. And it is a, a deep issue for people. And it can be tough if somebody tells you that, Hey, the way that you're eating might not be optimal. It's really hard to change people's perceptions. I remember, you know, Ben Bergeron of CrossFit New England fame used to tell us that changing somebody's viewpoint on nutrition is almost as difficult as changing somebody's viewpoint on politics or religion. I mean, there's, there's a lot of personal cachet that people put into how they eat and why they eat. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a tough and complicated subject. I don't think the answers for most people out there are tough and complicated. I think that the application of those answers is tough and complicated. How do you actually make the jump from where you are to where you want to be and what decisions do you have to make consistently over time to get there? The other thing that you said about, you know, these diets that are out there, a lot of them come down to a couple of things, you know, the reduction of systemic inflammation. I think a lot of them aim to do that in their different ways. And then number two, there's usually some sort of restriction on caloric intake that's associated with where you're entering the diet to where you're applying the diet, right? So if you go from the standard American diet into any of those things that you just named, you're more than likely going to see health benefits from it because you're going to reduce systemic inflammation and you're going to lose weight. That just comes from the fact that you're probably no longer eating as much process, pro asterisk, probably at eating as much processed shit as you might have been prior. Most of those diets are aimed at doing that in their different ways. Now, where do we go from here? How do you, how do you approach these subjects if you are somebody who's a coach or a family member, what's your approach when you're talking about how you do things and why you do things? I mean, I think the most powerful thing you can do is speak from personal experience. Like and, you oh, yeah. And always put out the fact that like, you know, this worked for me because nutrition is very, very individual from person to person. Now that's kind of a secondary step to what you've been saying the whole time, which there are these just universal truths that we can always lean on as coaches that, isn't like no one can dispute or really have like, or shouldn't have an emotional reaction to less processed foods, right? Like you should avoid things that have an ingredient list this big. You should avoid, you know, the center aisles of the supermarket. If you're really trying to optimize health, shop around the peripheries, whether that means- Let me, can I interrupt you for a second? Go ahead, Sorry, go ahead. I got to interrupt because listen, I fucking agree with you, man. Like this is, this is nutrition 101 for me. But if I'm somebody who's sitting across from you who's saying, 
but the label says healthy or the label says low fat or the label says that this is all natural. You know, I, there's a, there could be in my house over here, a jar of peanut butter from Skippy that says all natural on it that, you know, I, it's probably poison for me. Like that's something that, you know, I'm, I still have things in my nutrition that I'm not perfect with, but like, there's a lot of people out there who, when they go into the supermarket, will pull things off the shelf simply because they say healthy on them essentially in not so many words. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it comes down to that idea that like, you know, you shouldn't be relying on a label. You shouldn't be relying on a label because a then, point. you know, it's, it's, it always boils down to whoever is making that label and putting stuff on that label has at least a, a, a secondary motive to putting something out that is going to be healthy for you. Mm. And usually, you know, your health is actually the secondary motive. So if you're What's relying the primary on motive? money, 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 Make money. Um, but you know, it's, it's one of those things where I, I don't have to look at a label of broccoli to see, you know, if it's, healthy or if it's vitamin fortified or if it's organic or all natural. Now, are some produce going to be organic and some aren't? Of course. But in terms of like, you know, shopping the peripheries and trying to figure out like, what of this is healthier than the others? It's a very kind of more gradual change of am I doing what's best versus am I doing what's optimal? Mm. Whereas in the middle, in those center aisles with packages and all these labels that, you know, promise you everything under the sun, you know, it's, it's much more tricky waters in there. Yeah. This is a, you know, when we get into this part of the conversation, when you start talking about shopping and, you know, the actual application of when somebody's going to Safeway or stop and shop or whatever. And like, let's say that that's the first place that they start and they start making decisions to shop the perimeter of the supermarket. That's a huge leap down the ladder from buying mostly processed or highly uh, artificial foods. You know, I think that obviously there's another step down the ladder when you say, well, oh, you know, you got to go local and you got to find somebody who's, you know, practicing regenerative farming and, you know, is only growing things when they're actually in season and then is raising their own cattle or their own pork and then you could buy from them. Yes, obviously that's like the utopian state all, all the, on the other side of the spectrum. But like in the battle of the lesser of two evils, when you see somebody make some decisions to say, hey, I'm not going to pull this thing off of the shelf. I'm actually going to go around here. I'm going to buy some things that are I'm making air quotes, quote unquote, fresh. And uh, these have been grown and they're minimally processed. That's a huge, huge win. And um, I think that we can celebrate those and obviously continue to educate people that there are different ways and means that you can continue to go down that ladder. But you said something really early on in the podcast where one of those healthy decisions, if you can make one decision, it begets other healthy decisions. It's, it's, I was talking to somebody the other day about like a couple of the things that I do or a couple of decisions that I make early in the day. And it sets my whole rest of the day up for success because I don't necessarily want to go. If I make a good decision in the morning, I don't want to fucking go to McDonald's at lunch and then just like end up being a slug for the rest of the day. Like it's really hard for me to undo my early healthy decisions by making terrible decisions through the rest of the day. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I think as coaches, one thing that you said that I think is super important is 
once it comes to like human behavior, like it's so important for us to celebrate those small wins for people and really recognize how big of a win it is for some people, right? Like making that small change to you that's already gone through this, you know, huge health journey might seem like, well, of course you're going to do that one tiny thing. We have to realize that when we're trying to get people, whether it's our athletes or, you know, a loved one that you're trying to help improve with their health, like really, really like blowing up how amazing it is that they've taken that small step is like one of the key things that you can do to really get people to build a little momentum and make some like real change. And I think that that's something that I need to constantly remind myself as, you know, whether it's a coach on the floor or essentially being a coach of nutrition to everyone that I interact with, it's, you know, it's not this, well, if you're not buying everything regeneratively raised, like, you know, you might as well like throw your hands up and, you know, you're not doing any good. Like that is so ridiculous, right? That, that is absolutely crazy. Not only from an affordability or availability standpoint, it's just a big change for people. And I think that what's important there is, and it's funny because ever since I've like been posting a lot of this stuff, I have been having some conversations just on Instagram with people that are curious and like questions here and there. And I love the fact that some people are literally just, Hey, I've been getting my eggs from a farmer's market now. And that's, that's all I'm doing. And that is so incredible. And even if that's all they ever change, it's still the difference between maybe them not doing that before. But like you said, you know, using that example, now you're going to a farmer's market every week. You're probably going to try different things. You're probably going to experiment with this, maybe buy a little bit of this. You're going to maybe want to cook more now. You're going to be having a breakfast that you're actually making with those eggs instead of just grabbing a bar on the way out. You're slowing down. Like there's so many like little offshoot benefits that you can like play in your head when a really small change happens and they might not even notice it, but it still leads to like really, really powerful stuff. Mm. That's very true. I think coaches who are listening to this and, you know, athletes who are thinking about their nutrition or, you know, they want to discuss these things with friends or family or loved ones. A couple of things to remember here is that at least in my experience, number one is that like you always have to let your own actions do the talking first and foremost. So it's really hard for me to go out there and talk about the power, the extreme power of eating in a certain way, if I'm not actually practicing that thing myself, and I'm not saying that coaches out there need to be all need to be ripped and have a six pack and all that kind of stuff. But like, hey, if you are a beacon of health and wellness and fitness for your community, no matter how big or how small, like, in my opinion, you should be practicing those good habits more often than not, you should be displaying those you should be putting your money where your mouth is, for lack of a better term, and doing the things that you want your people to do. I think another thing that's really important for coaches to to remember is that nobody is going to change the way they eat unless they are ready to change the way they eat. Like you can give them the information and you can lead by example, but you're not going to fucking force food down this adult's mouth. Like it's not the way that it goes. Like you can't be the person to be force feeding people the quote unquote right stuff. Like that's not the way to do it. That person needs to eventually make the decision on their own and their own license to say, I'm going to put this down and I'm going to pick this up. And you could have an quote unquote 
not like not, I don't want to say uphill battle because that's not the way to go either. You shouldn't just be like nagging people to death about their nutrition, but you might just reach a stalemate with somebody for weeks or months or potentially years. But at some point they could be ready to make the change and you can be that person who's there for them. And, you know, one, one thing that that reminds me of, and I a hundred percent like sympathize with this issue because I, you know, I deal with it myself is, you know, sometimes whether you're a coach or not, like the person that we're like most fired up about, like trying to tell them these things that you know are true tend to be our loved ones, right? Whether it's a sibling, our parents, you know, our spouse possibly. And sometimes those are the hardest people to like get to listen to you, right? And, and we've all been there, yeah. you know, my, my little sister, you know, like I can get someone, you know, on Instagram to like make a change because I put something up. But like, you know, my little sister, I've been trying to get her to change certain things for years. And like, even if she were to listen to this, she would like 100% agree, but she just won't listen to me. And it's one of those things where you shouldn't get frustrated and discouraged if the people closest to you are the ones that you're struggling the most to get them to do those kind of changes, because it's really tough to do that the closer your relationship is for whatever reason. And also what you said you know, it always comes down to people needing to be ready for that change. Yeah. Um, well, you have to, you know, I think everybody can empathize with this position because I'm sure everybody thinks of somebody in their head where they go, why don't you just do X? <laughs> like you just grab them by the lapels and they're like, why can't you just do X? Yeah. You have to still love that person for who they are. And, you know, this not trying to fat shame anybody, not trying to call anybody out on like making them feel bad about where they are. I do think that some measure of accountability and some measure of honesty is necessary. Like it just is a fact that there is 75% of the American population that's obese or overweight. We can't pretend that that's not a fucking issue. That's an issue. And if you are somebody who's overweight or struggling with your nutrition you know, it's, it's really hard. I think that as coaches and as loved ones, especially as loved ones, if somebody within your inner circle, man, you got to love that person in a way that, you know, that you're honest with them and that you're supportive, but like, ultimately too, you don't necessarily want to completely destroy your relationship with this person over food until, I mean, maybe until, there could be an argument where it's like, Hey, is this really as bad as it's going to like, is this person putting their life and their, their health and jeopardy? Like tomorrow, is that the case? Do you need to have some tough love with them? Again, this gets complicated, man. But like, I guess the ultimate point that I'm trying to get to is that you have to love these people and they have to be ready to make those changes for themselves. And sometimes that's, sympathy and understanding and other times it could be tough love and information and things that they might not want to hear yeah and sometimes the frustration comes because you know you care about that person so much right like that's why you're so frustrated that they won't just listen to you but yeah i mean it's it's complicated and it takes patience and sympathy and understanding but um like you said you know it's it's a real issue for our society and it might be a very real issue for someone you know and that's not something that you know is worth dancing around um 
just because it might be something that, you know, some people are sensitive mm. to. And it's a problem that's getting worse. You know, the um, Washington Post just shared, I think just this week, um, where they had a study and the average American gained 29 pounds over the pandemic. That's um, the average? The average. Yeah, the average. There was, Dude. I think, the group that gained the most, and I, I, I don't have the source in front of me now. Yeah, again, sources can be f- misleading, but... But I mean, this was, you know, I, I mean, A, I think we can all agree that as a society, we gained a little bit weight through the pandemic, right? Like, probably, people were, I would say, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, like it, the stat seems to hold water. Um, and if there's any truth to that, like 29 pounds is a big deal, yeah. you know? Um, huge. And it just, you know, it just goes to show that, you know, this is an issue and it's not an issue that's improving. And it's also not an issue that isn't going to improve without fitness professionals, nutrition professionals, not only putting out valuable information, but also like supporting people in trying to get them the right information, Mm. um, holding people accountable. And also, like you said, you know, leading by example. Mm. The COVID situation is another one that obviously has a ton of socioeconomic political issues behind it and real health issues out there. We're dealing with a fucking virus. It's a virus. There's no two ways about that. Let's put that aside for a second and let's look at any situation that could be considered like a COVID type of situation. Like these were opportunities, you know, not only for people, individuals, families, and businesses, whether you were going to let this thing really impact you in a way that's going to have long-standing, really terrible health impacts for you, like gaining 29 pounds? Or is there a measure of discipline that although there was these lockdowns and restrictions and things you could and couldn't do, and you couldn't go to the gym and it made food shopping harder and all these kinds of things, all of that I understand. But there's also a level of personal responsibility that goes into even that where you could say it could make a decision and say, Hey, listen, I'm going to make this next year. I'm going to make the most of this next year. And instead of gaining 29 pounds, what I'm going to do is I'm going to wake up 10 minutes earlier every day and I'm going to move my body. And I'm going to try to, you know, if I don't have access to all these amazing, you know, rich nutrient foods out there, I'm, I'm just going to try to control the qua- the quantity of my nutrition. I'm not going to go out of control. I'm not going to binge eat or binge drink or whatever. And there's a lot of stories out there of people who completely changed their lives over the past year. But like, that's really kind of crazy that the average weight gain over the course of the past year is 29 pounds, largely probably due to one inactivity or not lack of access to fitness and two, the types and qualities of foods and the quantity of food that people are eating. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I mean, the statistic was definitely, you know, pretty jarring. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have guessed it was it was it was that high. Um, but yeah, I mean, putting all things that would be polarizing about this aside, you know, there's always always a level of personal responsibility, and I think that it is important for people to acknowledge that, you know, even if they did all the wrong things for the past year, 
you know, it was an incredibly stressful time and some people were impacted more severely than others, but that doesn't change what's in your control even now. You know, really I think that point. two things, one is, and we talked about this before, like people underestimate how powerful little, little changes can make, but also like every day is an opportunity to like stop doing the things that you know are not helping you, right? Like people tend to dwell so much on how tough things have been and this and that, but you can always just start today and it's still better than waiting for like another you know, year to really feel like you need to do that stuff. I love that point. Now I want to underscore the importance of that because you, whoever you are, whether it's me or you or anybody else out there, you can really change a lot with one decision, with one meal, with one workout on the surface, things might not change. You might not lose the 29 pounds that you put on in the pandemic with just one workout or one meal, but there are things physiologically that will change within your body by eating for a very short period of time or working out for a short period of time that will change quickly. And it's not a foregone conclusion that this is the way things have to be for whoever you are. Just because you have gotten to this point by making certain decisions doesn't mean it always has to be that way. You're never stuck. You have an opportunity to make the next better decision and continue to build momentum off of those decisions. That I think is a important message out there because even for myself, man, like I have certain goals performance wise. And, you know, a lot of them relate to jujitsu. Now I want to compete at some point in jujitsu and um, I want, I want to do well in that. And, you know, my training and nutrition have become more of a focus, but I tend to agonize over the weight of the decisions in the moment and go, Oh, you know, I can start another day or like, I'll just start on Monday or like, I'll wait till, you know, next week to start. And that what ends up happening is five, six, seven fucking weeks will go by. And I look back and I go, I remember standing a lot of times it's like deja vu. I remember standing in this same exact spot, looking in the mirror, saying to myself, wouldn't it be great if you just made that one decision today? And that one decision felt like super heavy in the moment, but then five or six weeks later, you're like, holy, holy shit, all that time passed by. And now it feels like you're even further behind the eight ball, but that's a lot of it's stories that you tell yourself. Some of it is actually like the human nature of when you're not thinking about things, time can go by a lot faster. And when you get into trying to do a certain thing, a certain way, things are going to slow down. It's going to feel like if you are restricting your caloric intake or you're changing the way that you eat for a couple of weeks, those couple of weeks are going to drag by as opposed to if you're just doing your normal shit. And we all do that all the time. Like it's one of the most, like, I feel natural human things to do, right? Like I joke around with Ariel all the time that like, you know, something will come up and I'll just say that's, that's a future gate problem. Um, <laughs> but like, as soon as you realize that like future gate problems are always a bigger pain in the ass than like, today gate problems. Yeah. And they're present, um, they're present problems too, because if you're, if this, that's really funny that you framed it that way, because it's like, you can be sitting there in the present being like, Oh, that's a problem in the future. 
but it's actually, it's a problem right now because you know, it's a problem in the future. Yeah. Yeah. And like, there is something to be said about like, you know, prioritizing, you know, what you have to do. But I mean, I think we all do it more times than we'd like to admit where it's easily something you can deal with now. It wouldn't be a big deal, but it's just like kind of inconvenient. And like, you know, you might be doing something else and you like let it turn into this thing that becomes a real, real pain in the ass in Mm. the future. Um, But yeah, I mean, the, the, the more that you become like self-aware of that happening, whether it's with your food or different habits, you know, I think the more that you can, you'll be motivated yourself to make those changes down the line. And that's where, you know, like one of the things as like a, a coach that I think is most powerful for people is if you can convince them to in some way start really keeping track of their reaction to food, like how it makes them feel like whether it's having like a journal or an app or something, make that them like, even just make them aware, not necessarily yeah, convince don't change them. anything, give, give some awareness, don't change anything. Mm. But even if it's as simple as like taking a picture of your meals, and then, you know, two hours later, texting yourself, you know, like, what your energy level is, then just the awareness can motivate people to want to make those changes, because they don't realize the connection between having a super high carb breakfast and crashing right around noon, mm. but they don't want to crash around noon. Yeah. And then as soon as they see that, like developing into a pattern, they themselves are not going to want to have that type of breakfast. Yeah. They're going to want to do something that's going to make them feel better. I think this brings us back to, you know, one of the points that we both made uh, towards the middle of this conversation is that the coaches who are out there in these boutique micro gyms, whether or not you're talking about an NC fit gym or a functional training facility, CrossFit affiliate, you're talking about a jujitsu studio, you're talking about some uh, a location in which there's a tight knit community in which that community looks to the coach for guidance and leadership. That's the kind of situation I'm talking about right now. Those people, those coaches are the most important health professionals in those people's lives for two reasons. Number one is I think that they have the biggest ability to make the greatest impact on those people through their influence, because a lot of times in these gyms, and I don't have to tell you this, you probably know this is that all those community members look up to the coach as being a beacon of light and information of knowledge and inspiration. And you know, they don't want to let coach down. A lot of people in these communities have really strong feelings of loyalty and ties, ties and encouragement to their coach. The other thing is number two, the amount of physical time that these people spend with you, you are by a landslide, the most important person in their health journey. They spend maybe 15, 20 minutes with a doctor two to three times per year on average, potentially, but they spend an hour with you three to four times a week. That's like you're blowing everybody else out of the water. And that's why it's so important, in my opinion, that coaches are armed with not only the information, the awareness to have these discussions when it's the right time, the right place, but also that you're leading from the front in the decisions that you're making and how you're talking to these athletes and what they see you eating and how they see you doing your workouts and what they see you posting on social media. That's a huge position of influence. That's huge. 
Yeah. And it goes back to, you know, one of the conversations that we have a lot when we do the pro dev series, it's this idea of what leadership and also what like really caring means, right? Like everyone says they care, everyone wants to be a, a leader, but how are you actually doing that? Especially in this realm of like health, fitness, and nutrition, which is as coaches, what we're supposed to be all about. Um, and yeah, I mean, it can't be understated, um, no, can't be overstated how be overstated. you know important of a, a of a role we have because of the time we're spending with athletes, um, but also just because of you know this position that we're put into where they do look look up to everything we do and and the knowledge that we have. It's a big yeah. responsibility. It's really it's really important, and you know this gets into the and we we don't have time this morning to talk about it, but this gets into the conversation of when people say like coaches out there say, Oh, I'm just a coach, or they kind of are bashful about what they do and why they do it. Or they're embarrassed that, you know, that they've chosen to make the gym, their career or their profession. I think that like we were just saying, there's nothing to be embarrassed about. It's an incredibly noble profession. I think we're doing greater things for more people than most health professionals out there, but also it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you're constantly telling yourself that you're nothing but just a coach or that your job isn't important, that will definitely bleed over into how you are perceived or how you actually go out there and take action on your community. Like you can't tell me that that's not the case. If somebody's constantly telling themselves that I don't have an important job, of course, the way that you go out there and do it at some level is going to reflect that maybe a conversation for another day. Definitely a conversation for another day. I did not think this conversation was going to go this way. You know, I originally thought that we were going to end up talking about uh, culture and team and things that, you know, obviously are also really, really important to both of us as professionals in the fitness industry, but also at NC fit. But I'm really glad that we did have this conversation this morning. Gabe, any last words from the farm? Oof. A lot of last words. No, I mean, I, I, I'm i glad that we ended up talking about this stuff because I do think that it's super important and super timely. Um, and again, I just can't stress enough the fact that it doesn't have to be these massive changes. It doesn't have to be that you do a 180 about how you buy your food, cook your food, go about eating. There's one or two things that everyone knows they can do better without even having to do any additional research. Um, and even doing those a couple times a week, it's a, it's a huge, huge impact. And I encourage people to, you know, start today and not wait till the following Monday, depending on when this comes out, you know, <laughs> take action now. I love that. And uh, if anybody was interested in following yours and Ariel's regenerative farming journey, where's the best place that they can go out there and find that? Definitely Instagram. Um, I'm trying to be a little bit better about sharing stuff. The animals are a hoot. So it's really fun if you want a couple of laughs a couple of times a day. Um, but yeah, just at underscore Gabe Yanez. Um, and then you can also follow at Ariel Bloom. Uh, she's a little bit better about posting a lot of farm stuff. I think you guys got to start a uh, farm specific Instagram handle at some point it's in the works it's in the works i'm sure it it, it's in the works not enough hours in the day all righty buddy well always a pleasure gabe thank you very much i'm sure you'll be back on soon have a good rest of the day go tend to those animals let's go thanks for having me